and welcome to On the Matter of Systems, uh, where every month your two hosts, uh, that's myself, BW, and my co-host, B. Say hi, B. Hello, B. No, wait. Hi, BW. Okay. <laughs> oldest great. joke in the book. Got him. Uh-huh. No, it's good. Uh, it's great. Uh, oldest joke in the book that you immediately walked back, which is very good. Uh, I like that, actually, very much. Um, but yeah, so every month, uh, myself and B, we critically engage with some RPG theory and some RPG design. Uh, this is episode 5.2 of On the Matter of Systems. Uh, and that point two tells you that we'll be talking about some RPG design. So last time, last episode, we read I Have No Words and I Must Design by Greg Kostikian. And this time, we will be discussing the game Troika by Daniel Sell. Uh, I'm just going to go into it. Uh, so uh, normally at this point in the episode, what I talk about is what game we're covering and why. Uh, so I'm going to start with the why quickly. So I picked Troika for a few different reasons. Uh, the the main one is it's weird, and I I I thought it looked cool. Um, hell yeah, it is, and hell yeah, it yeah, does. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also a system that like is pretty explicitly interested in sort of gaps and incompleteness, sort of as a system of mechanics and as an RPG, uh, which seemed really interesting. Um, and it's also a very flavor forward book. Um, so. We have we have read books with flavor. We've read books with like media properties listed as reference points, things like that. And it came up in some conversation. I don't remember which one. Maybe it was the Aegon episode uh, when we were talking about uh, Apocalypse World and how when Apocalypse World came out, the sort of flavor heaviness of the text was something that some people really liked and some people really didn't mm-hmm. and thought impacted sort of the readability and things like that. So I just thought it would be interesting to read something that's very flavor forward. Um, and see how see how we react to that. And then finally, uh, I own it. I own a physical copy of the book because um, I backed the Kickstarter for the Troika Numinous edition. Um, and so I thought it, I thought it would be fun. Yeah. And then what is it? So what is Troika? <laughs> uh, so Troika is a tabletop RPG. Um, it uses D6s. Um, it is. Uh, we talked about this a little bit at the end of the last episode, and we can say more about it as we go through, but it's sort of nebulously related to the OSR scene. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, as we discussed a little end of last episode, I did not come to it via that. Uh, my OSR experience is is much less than sort of yours, B. Mm-hmm. Um, OSR, but, short for Old School oh, Renaissance yes. or Old School Revival, uh, a scene that very broadly starts when third edition Dungeons and Dragons comes out and makes a bunch of changes and people go, but what about the old ones? And then start making games like uh, Pathfinder to sort of move backwards to older styles of role-playing, at least ideologically. (laughs) Well, we'll get into that someday. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and the interesting thing I think about Troika and OSR is specifically that Troika is notable for not being based on sort of D&D style kind of combat or systems, right? So D&D, or sorry, so Troika is based on Fighting Fantasy, um, which is a series of sort of uh, light choose-your-own-adventure book RPG kind of thing. Notably not Um, licensed from Fighting Fantasy, just sort of kind of ripped out some of the systems (laughs) and created their own world. Correct. Yes. Um, And... The, the rules, I would say, are pretty straightforward in a lot of cases. They're just sort of odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and the focus, like I've said, is really the setting and sort of the gaps in kind of the world laid out. Um, Troika is by Daniel Sell. 
Um, he runs the Melsonian Arts Council, uh, which publishes a lot of weird and cool stuff. Um, Troika has also spawned a, a rather massive world of sort of supplements and settings and scenario books and things like that. Um, I will say I, I looked into this and getting the exact dates on things has been pretty difficult, at least for me, for Troika. So originally it was a zine around like maybe 2017-ish, it seems like. I think that's right. Uh, and then uh, maybe a year and a half, two years later, somewhere around late 2018, early 2019, I believe. Uh, this one, I, I could have gotten the exact date. I just forgot to put it in my notes. But uh, <laughs> there was a Kickstarter launched for the version that we read, which is Troika Numinous Edition. And then there was actually a more recent Kickstarter uh, that I found out about, which was, I think, last year. I completely missed that. Yeah, it's for a soft cover version. And it's basically not a, from what I could tell, it seems like it's not a new version in terms of rules or anything like that. It's more about uh, having it in print again and in print and soft cover, and then a bunch of additional supplements and things maybe from sort of other designers to sort of augment it. Cool. And it was successful from what I could tell, which seems cool. Um, yeah. People like Troika. People do like Troika. This is, uh, I guess that's sort of the other good kind of big context is I had heard a lot of positive things about it and had seen buzz, which like, I'm not even a person who pays attention to tabletop RPG buzz. Like, that's just not the world that I'm <laughs> in on the internet. Uh -huh. But even so, somehow I had seen a bunch of people talking about Troika. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I had a conversation. I'm sure I'm sure Jesse will be fine with this. And if not, hey, Jesse, sorry. Um, <laughs> but my friend Jesse and I were having uh, like a text back and forth the other day. And I was saying, oh, yeah, we're recording the next episode. And we're talking about Troika. And he was like, oh, wow, I've read that. <laughs> and uh, I was very curious what Jesse in particular thought of, uh, about it, because Jesse is a good friend of mine. But Jesse also is like, Troika is in some ways the anti-Jesse RPG book, I think. Interesting. Um, lots of gaps, lots of incompleteness, uh, lots of stuff that like is mentioned and not really defined. Mm -hmm. um, and Jesse's takeaway was basically like, wow, I never want to play this. But also, like, like basically, this is not for me at all, but this really seems good for the people who it's for, right? Uh -huh. Like, this is not what I want out of games or systems. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I would say, has been pretty consistent in the poking I've done, which is like... Uh, even people who are maybe like, oh, like the incompleteness is weird. They're like, but this, but it like it holds together. It's just not holding together in a way that makes me want to play it, essentially. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, I guess that's where I'll leave sort of my big open summary is like, it's, it's a real weird game. It's like really well, well liked. And I thought it would be fun to read. So, hey, B. Hi, can I cut you off you before you ask? Okay, God, please. <laughs> Um, I just, so I, I did a, some research on the fighting fantasy stuff and can I give, just sort of give our audience sort of my high level, like what I, what I came to understand because everything I have engaged with, whether that's, um, interviews or podcasts or uh, actual plays sort of vaguely mentions at the top that like, oh yeah, Troika is like kind of a, it's kind of got some fighting fantasy vibes. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And so I did some research, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind if I could just kind of dump dump a little bit here. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, I... Just very high level. Um, like like we mentioned, Fighting Fantasy was like a was is a choose your own adventure book series um, that was also made into an RPG. Um, and the... 
like base mechanics of of uh, Troika are basically exactly the same with with one difference. In both, you have skill, luck, and stamina as your base stats, and uh, the only difference is there's uh, one dice roll that's different uh, in the skill section. Um, and like even the character sheet looks almost identical. It's it's very interesting to me because. There is no mention of fighting fantasy in in Troika whatsoever, um, and this sort of goes back to the uh, the question of the open game license that we talked about a bit ago. Um, the and versus the sort of Agon version of that. Um, they ooh, do you remember the name of the? Is it the Paragon system that they use for Agon? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, and just like. The ways in which uh, the role-playing world has used different um, sort of uh, methods of distributing their copyrightable things. Um, I really like that Troika comes out the gate and basically goes, I'm taking your system. <laughs> um, no, there's no OGL for, for fighting fantasy, um, even though the people who wrote it were the people who made Games Workshop. You know, uh, Warhammer and Warhammer 40k. <laughs> um one of them went on to found Lionhead, which made, you know, black and white. Uh, and uh, wow, the yeah. other went on to become the life president of Eidos uh, for oh, a little while. Wow. And is a knight. Really? Yes. <laughs> he was he knighted. He was knighted? Oh, this date did not jump out to me. That is uh-huh. so recent. Wow. In January 2022, for, he has an OBE, I believe, technically. Don't come at me, British people. Uh, for, for, quote, for services to the online gaming industry. Um, so, like, wow. these are, this is just to say, these are people who, if they had the time, or not time, if they had the inclination, they certainly have the resources to say, like, you can't, you know, you can't take our shit. Uh, and to, to mire this in court. And I just love that that Daniel Sell was like, I'm taking that shit and I'm just not going to acknowledge it. Uh, and I'm going to change one little thing and you can't copyright mechanics. So fuck off. Um, uh, and, and that just made me, that made me like respect the game on a, on a non-system level, but on a just a, um, an audacity level, on a weirdness level, even more. And that's sort of my like, my like longer view of, of the the way that uh, Troika takes uh, from fighting, fighting fantasy, um, you know, hit me up on the internet if you want to if you want to talk more about it, because it's fascinating to me. Anyway, I mean, I, I think the thing that I love about the relationship between Troika and fighting fantasy is that, like you said, right? Dan- Daniel Sell is not in any way hiding this information. He's just not interested in like discussing it much. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like uh, there were multiple interviews where people would like, "So tell me about fighting fantasy," and he was basically like, "Yeah, I liked it, mm-hmm. so I took it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and then I tried to make it better. Uh, <laughs> and like yeah. that's it. It's great. Uh, and then in the in the front matter of the book, he I, I think he lays it out really well, which is basically like. You can't just redistribute the book Troika, (laughs) Uh, right? Like you can't just make your own version of Troika unchanged, right? But you can publish free or commercial stuff that's compatible with it. You basically just have to say like, this is not, Milsonian Arts Council didn't do this, I did this. Mm -hmm. And then the mechanics can all be just reused freely. They just, he's just like, you know, you can't steal the art or like just basically reprint the text, which... Just feels very of it. Just feels very of a piece <laughs> with like yes. the entire project. It's great, yeah. and that is you know how, to my understanding at least, it actually works. Um, as opposed to 
things like the OGL, um, mm-hmm. which sort of they they present themselves as uh, ways of being generous to other creators, wh- while not necessarily having enforceable uh, or like uh, precedent <laughs> in court enforceable uh, limitations on those things, which is just interesting. Um, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I am also not a lawyer. It's uh, worth saying. Okay. Well. Yeah. What do you think of Troika? BW, do you? Hello. Do you want to just scrap the conversation thing and just play Troika right now? <laughs> uh, I mean, I did. I did make a character sheet. That's true. Uh, I, I did. You, I did. I did. You. You chatted me at, on Discord about this at six in the morning, right after I had woken up, and I immediately created a uh, an encounter and a very a very brief, you know, like play session. Um, like I am literally ready to play this game if you want to at some point. Um, but that's that's actually we, we can table that for now because. That's that is my reaction to this game. Like every time I was reading through it, I was like, "Oh fuck me, I want to play this." Uh, this is if, as you said, shout outs to Jesse. If this is the anti Jesse game, this is an extremely B game. <laughs> um, I was very curious because I I really super did not know. I I felt like this game in particular, like I feel like I've had a, an okay sense for most of them. Aegon was a bit of an outlier where I was <laughs> like, I'm not really sure exactly how B is gonna feel, <laughs> but but Troika my guess was you are either going to fall in love completely or you're going to hate it so much (laughs) that I got messages that were like, what the fuck are you, what did you make me read? Uh Uh-huh. And I'm very pleased that it's the former, not the latter. Um, I'm, you know, I enjoy one of the latter ones also. I I enjoy hating. Um, I'm a a hater sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And I'm going to eventually pick something that one of us actively despises, but... Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I was I was pleased because I really I also really like this book a lot. I think this I think Troika is really fascinating. I don't know if I'm I definitely didn't. I mean, for one, I'm just me, so <laughs> I definitely didn't have the reaction of like, ooh, I want to play this immediately, right? And even what I was doing with the character sheet was mostly me just like I was just curious about like what is the what is the actual act of creating a character and like. Specifically, one of the things I was interested in is because this is a book that has gaps, right? I was curious Mm -hmm. if those gaps would extend to actually trying to use it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Or if there's enough there that when you run into a gap, you can kind of go, ah, I have a sense of my options here, or I have a sense of how Troika might want me to resolve this or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I decided to just like, come up with a name and go through that first process and see how it felt. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, where, do, where do you want to start? Um, just to sort of like, just to sort of like um, make it clear what kind of exactly for me this is. Sure. Part of it is, is the gaps, right? The little lacuna that are, that are all through this, the ways that like, there are mechanics that just kind of like dead end or like that just sort of like pop out of of the side of the thing and are like referenced literally nowhere else that 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 just works for me um you know 
not 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 gonna say deconstructionist but uh like the way that the text kind of actively deconstructs itself it points out its own limits or or absences and it's just like here you go um love that um i love when i when i when you first proposed it i was like oh this seems a little long um but like you said it's uh you know a lot of it's just like literally like characters and and enemies and spells and stuff like that and that was part of the reason i wanted to like build a little encounter is because like i had sort of read through each of the like you know long tables of spells and enemies and shit or and like a good chunk of of the character or like the the backgrounds rather but like it's a different it's a different mental skill set right to be like okay if i'm going to build an encounter and there's going to be a battle in it yeah like looking at enemies that way uh yeah is like okay so now i'm like actually internalizing like what the level of skill means whereas before i was just like okay it's got 14 skill that's like a big number i guess and then thinking about like running up against a character with a 14 skill thing i was like oh wait <laughs> um. yeah it, so uh this is very interesting to me because we have i mean we've done something very naturally which is cool right which is you have focused on the like what is the process from a gm perspective and i mm-hmm. focused on it from a player perspective because that's the exact those are the exact questions i had on you know like so maybe it's worth Maybe it's worth starting to talk about actual mechanics a little bit, just because we could kind of start with character stuff. So the way characters are made in this game um, is is actually, I would say, like, so sort of straightforward. Uh, yeah, it's extremely it, straightforward. <laughs> yeah, so, like, you get a character sheet, and you basically all, all uh, characters have three uh, primary stats. They have skill, stamina, and luck. And so you roll a 1d3, and then you add 3 to that to determine your skill level. You roll a 2d6 plus 12 to determine stamina, and you roll a 1d6 plus 6 to determine luck. And then every character has baseline possessions, uh, some some money, a knife, some other stuff, uh, some food. Right, yeah. And then the final part of character creation is you roll a d66 uh, which, as Daniel helpfully points out a couple of places, to roll a d66, you can just roll a d6 twice. The first time you roll it, uh, it is the first digit, and the second time you roll it, it's the second digit. And that will give you a two-digit number somewhere between 11 and 66, I guess. Mm-hmm. And those are the backgrounds. And the backgrounds basically give you the equivalent of, like, in a traditional RPG, would be, like, a race-class combo. They give you your background, meaning there's actually some text talking about sort of what who you are or what you are. They provide you with some specific skills, some special possessions, and then some of them have sort of special benefits um, to add. Uh, so it's pretty straightforward in terms of the mechanisms. Um, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about backgrounds, B? Yeah, I mean, so to be to be just absolutely clear here, you do not choose your background. Correct. Uh, it is chosen by the dice, uh, and there is there is no point in which this game even suggests that you have the option <laughs> to like read through oh, and yeah. go, "Hey, I would like yeah. to do this." No, it is it is very clear both in this character creation section and in the couple of places where they talk through character death that mm-hmm. the the way that you get a background is you roll d sixty six. That is what you do, mm-hmm. um, and and that is especially clear in, in my favorite thing because you know 
you read through its you know character creation. Here's the overview, here are the backgrounds, and then the next su- subsection is creating your own backgrounds. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is the part where a player can like homebrew something and like come to the table, and you know you can have your like whatever your your paladin who actually secretly worships the devil or whatever, like you know. Uh, 15 year old me would have done uh, with a, a, with a deviled in. Okay. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> a deviled in. Get it? Uh, like a demon din, maybe something. Pala doesn't mean God, does it? No. But words, are, words can mean whatever you want them to mean. If you really think about it. it was a very good, it was a very good joke. And I'm glad I made it. And I'm going to stop um, <laughs> um, yeah, you can play as a as one of the demons from the uh, Golden Compass trilogy. That that would be what I would have done at fifteen. Um, I barely remember what those things are. Uh, but the creating your ba- own background section is uh, is for the GM. It's it's to say if you want to add you know an op- opportunity for a different background for players to potentially roll, you can. But People, you can't just make a background and come to the table with it, which I thought ruled. Um, and, you know, it's also just not how being at the table necessarily works, because you can still absolutely just be like, I'm act- I am actually really want to be um, the, uh, the fowler of the pond. Hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I actually said that out loud and then clicked over the tab and I was on it. I wasn't even looking at it. That that one has a has a particularly good name. Um, I don't know. There's like, there's it's a good mixture of things. Like you know, there's dwarves that have really sp- special. The the writing on the dwarf is very good, and then there's the profile of the pawns or the exographer. Um, like, the backgrounds are really fucking cool, and I I want to find where's the what's the like fake dwarf? Do you remember that one? I don't. Uh, but while you're looking for that, I can yeah. talk about the one that I rolled earlier today. So, um, and the, I'll, I'll just use this as an object lesson for like talking through one of these in a little more detail. So I rolled 36 uh, earlier today. Uh, my character's name was Bongle Duckheit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bongle Duckheit, uh, who I named before I rolled, turned out to be a monkey monger. Uh, yes. So that was ne- number 36. I'm going to just read... I'm just going to read this because it's a paragraph and it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, Life on the wall is hard. Uh, Important to note, the wall are capitalized. So life on the wall is hard. One is never more than a few yards from an endless fall. Yet those precarious villages still need to eat. This is where you come in with your edible monkeys. The distinction is purely for appeal since all monkeys are, of course, edible. You used to spend days on end dangling your feet off the edge of the world, watching over your chittering livestock while they scampered hither and thither. But there was no future in monkey meat. You wanted much more, and so stepped off. Or you fell off. Either way, you and some l- unlucky monkeys are here now, and that's all that matters. Yeah. Uh, my, my possessions as a monkey monger are monkey club, butcher's knife. Uh, this one I really liked a lot. 1d6 small monkeys mm-hmm. <laughs> that do not heed commands but are too scared and hungry to travel far from you and then finally a pocket full of monkey tra- treats and then i get some skills and so this is uh, so all backgrounds have the same thing so they have sort of a paragraph which kind of explains them some are shorter some are longer you have your possessions that your background gives you 
And then you have your advanced skills. And so the skills I have are climb, trapping, club fighting, and knife fighting. And then the monkey monger has a special ability, which is not an ability for the monkey monger. It's an ability for the GM. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, (laughs) uh, there's a system in this game. It's a very light system for the enemies, which I'll talk about now since it's relevant, called mean, M-I-E-N. So a lot of, if not all enemies, have a a mean table. And so if you as a GM are sort of needing to figure out, like, how are these goblins feeling? You can roll it. You can roll a d6. And uh, so I have one of these mean tables for my monkeys. And so the GM may choose at any point to roll a d6 and tell me if my monkeys are playful, stalking, hungry, tired, austere, or aggressive. And I like this one both because it, allows us to talk through all of the different things that you can get. Um, but mm-hmm. also because it, it it just very clearly shows kind of what you were talking about earlier, right? Which is like, you don't get to pick your background. And so Troika really wants you to lean into these things. And yes. like, it is built into the system. This is one of the things that Troika is very opinionated about. And I, I feel like I get it. And it helps players get in the mindset of the world, which is so much of the world of Troika are these weird gaps, right? But also just like baffling and confusing happenstances, right? Where like things happen that you could never predict because it's upside down world. Um mm-hmm. And so throwing you into one of these things where you're like, okay, we're going to play Troika. And then suddenly you're like, God, okay, fuck, I'm a monkey monger. Okay. So I've got like, I got monkeys. And sometimes they just might be tired and won't do anything. And also they don't listen to me. So like, what do I do? Uh, And it's just, there's, you know, however many of them, 50 or something of them. There's just 50 of these. And like, every time you sit down to play, you're going to roll dice and you might get the monkey monger twice in a row. But at every session and at every point where you die, Troika really wants you to take seriously like what you have in front of you and then own it and just start filling in the gaps how you think they make sense or would be funny or cool or whatever. To that point, like uh, you you know you noted right that uh, the wall is capitalized in the mm-hmm. in the monkey monger. Did you do a Did you do a search for the wall in the in the PDF at any point by any chance? I, no, I haven't. Guess what. Nowhere it, else. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, and that's part of the important thing, right? Um, the the reason we jump straight into all these backgrounds is because the book does that. You yeah. roll up your character, and then immediately you have a list of these fifty backgrounds, and they um, they function both as a large table of possible things that you might play, and I don't know, about 75% of the world building in in this text. <laughs> um. So I noticed this when, when I was like digging into the enemies and some of the other, so like I, I, I definitely haven't read through every single background, but I've read through a lot of them, I would say. And I, I ran into one that I thought was really cool. I think it might be literally the last one. Um, I'm trying to scroll quickly. See if I can yeah. find. Yeah, the Zoanthrop. Yes, yes. Um, and so I read through this one. I was just, you know, whatever, flipping through the PDF version. And at some point in your past, you. Um, this is from page thirty-eight. This is the Zoanthrop. At some point in your past, you decided you didn't need it anymore. You found a zoanthropologist and paid them well to remove your troublesome forebrain and elevate you to the pure and unburdened beast you are today. 
Um, and there's more, but I was just like, oh, that's kind of funny and weird, huh? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you have no starting possessions. You are probably not wearing any clothing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then I was looking through the enemies, and uh-huh. the last enemy is a zoanthrop. Yep. <laughs> and it has more info, which is I found very cool. That happens a couple times. Like, there's the yeah. parchment witches in both yep. um, characters and enemies. Dwarves are obviously in both ter- <laughs> characters and enemies. Um, and yeah, and yeah, they both they each each little bit of text here contributes to the sense that there is a world that is established that you do, yeah. you simply do not know. And you know how you're going to get to know it? You're going to play this game. Yeah, I mean, I, so <laughs> right, like, uh, we, how often have we talked about? Friends of the Table already on this podcast, right? But uh, that was where I I first learned about like Dungeon World and draw maps, leave blanks or whatever. And in that case, the 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 advice was sort of as you are planning, right? Leave blanks. Yes. And this is uh, you, you don't have to leave the blanks; they're already there. Yeah. <laughs> we we've made the blanks for you. Right. Fill them is- fill them in. That is such a good way of putting this and, and and description of how, like, why this immediately appeals to me, right? Games like Dungeon World, games in the Apocalypse Engine generally, they draw the maps, and then you have to, like, you, you they draw a map, you focus in on part of that map and leave bits of it blank. Troika says, here's, uh, here's the outline of something that is, that where every line ends jagged, and, like, you it's a fucking like <laughs> like um what is the like dot by dot <laughs> thing almost just like here's so many blanks you're going to fill it in but we don't we're not going to give you the numbers that, that the dots go in <laughs> so the picture you're going to make is fucking like it's going to be this this beautiful abstraction and there's going to be a map there at some point but there's still going to be the holes we put in there from the beginning it's so exciting to me it's i I think I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but like I have like had trouble with apocalypse world or not apocalypse world, especially, but just apocalypse uh, powered by the apocalypse games and and like actual trying to play them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- and I think this is like this is the style of game that I want to immediate. Th- when I say want to, I want to run this. I mean I want to run like. Uh, you know, a six-session campaign or something like that, or fifteen-session campaign in this. You want to run a campaign, right? Right. What is what is happening right now, listener? I have never finished a campaign in my life. I've been playing <laughs> role-playing games since I was like twelve or whatever. I've never finished a campaign. They, it's simply not a priority for me for most of the time. Troika makes me go, "Oh shit!" There is exactly enough in here. That, like, it doesn't get bogged down in the same way that I felt Agon does with, like, the weird tacked on, like, oh, yeah, here's our weird star chart that, like, um, you can you, you can play this as a campaign or whatever if you want to, but, like, here, there's not very much detail. Like, Troika, to me, is just, like, you test your luck, you, whenever you rest, you, you gain some shit, like, every bit of this screams to me, like, get a group together and play this like twice monthly for six months or something like that. Like, yeah, I don't know if I, I, I fucking, this game seems really cool. (laughs) Not to go back to the overall (laughs) thoughts part. Um, 
I mean, I, no, I, listen, I'm into it because I, I tend to agree. I also feel like this game is pretty cool. One of my favorite things that is related to backgrounds but isn't actually mentioned, I don't think, until much later in the book is uh, I'm looking at, I'm on page 52 now. So one of the things in backgrounds are these advanced skills, right? So uh, for the monkey monger, it was like climbing, trapping, the two weapons I had, etc. cetera. Uh, and the advanced skill description section in which he lays out uh, the skills and sort of defines a bunch of them. He says a couple of things. Uh, he says, one, the available skills are not limited to those listed here be- because you only get skills via like via your background or then sort of doing things essentially. Uh, well, that we could, we'll get into that. <laughs> sure. Uh, but basically the, the, the point Daniel Sal is trying to make, which is what I'm trying to get across, is mm-hmm. like, you you should just feel free to add a bunch of cool, weird skills that might be yes. useful, uh, because it's not like your your players need to go through the entire list selecting things. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is, uh, as you go through the backgrounds, you may get a background that has an advanced skill listed that just has no definition. It's just not in the skill section at all. Oh, totally. And yeah. so... I'm just going to read the sentence. You may notice some skills in the background section that don't have entries. Make those up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is great. Like, it's just very it's just very simple and straightforward. And uh, I love that there's not, like, I could see a version of this where it becomes a paragraph talking about, like, this is why we did this and because blah, blah, blah. And instead, it's just very clear. It's like, no, you're right that you notice that there's a gap. Fill it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Next, next section. Let's go. Like, I just, anyway, I just loved it. I thought it was great. I love that it wasn't even in the background section. Like, I love that it's in the advanced skills section. Uh, and then when it does come up, he's just very so straightforward about like, yeah, you're right. Make it up. That's it. I don't have anyth- anything else to say. I just really liked it. <laughs> I, I will come back to this point, but like, yeah, there is something also about this book and the way it just like, it just kind of, it's, you know, there's not really... I mean, the very beginning of this book is sort of your is your GM advice, your what is a role-playing game kind of section. But there's not really like a, 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 you know, a GM advice section. It's just through the whole thing. Like, it's everywhere. There's, there's just little bits, like like there are little, little holes or um, little, like, you know, piers that, <laughs> that just disappear after six feet or whatever in terms of, like... You know, just here's a here's an idea, uh, figure it out or don't. Um, there's just little bits of GM style advice that that pop up exactly like that. Like make it up. Like mm-hmm. this is this is how you play this game. I'm teaching you to play this game as you read this game. Uh, it's it's also pretty excellent at that. Um, I, I also, I mean, the other way I would frame that is that I think it's also teaching you how to read the game, which is I think yes. maybe the thing I'm find I find most impressive about it. Yes, is like you're totally right. It, Right. It's like it's coming back to it's it's basically Daniel Sell stepping in and going, you're correct. You did notice that it is intentional. This is what you do with it. And I just (laughs) like that sort of uh, level of familiarity with your own system and a level of sort of almost basically like pedagogy (laughs) kind of thinking of like 100 percent. Like, how can I make sure that, uh, like, what can I do to make sure that, like, as people go through, I can confirm that they are, in fact, reading this correctly? Um, it's just, I, yeah, I just was very, impre- I, very impressed. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, do you want um, to talk about the rules? 
proper? I quickly wanted to just touch on, as I mentioned, the derivative dwarf is number 43. Oh, um, yes, I forgot you were looking yeah. for that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I just wanted to read this one out because I I love it. And I was actually going to talk about the advanced skills thing, um, but we'll we'll get there. We, we got there and we'll get there when we get to the rules. Um, dwarves are known for being the finest artisans of the million spheres. Give a dwarf a rock and they will make gold. Give a dwarf a boulder and they will make a dwarf. You are supposed to be the finest expression of dwarfy craftsmanship, a true masterpiece, a brand new step in aesthetic design, a jump not seen since the old masters. And what we kind of can't convey here, right, is so the the actual dwarf is is number 22 and the image of the dwarf, the like the little character portrait is this like pretty elaborate, like completely flat line, like heavily penciled in line drawing with like uh, just black and white and some like yellow highlights of a of a small man, like sort of almost balding with a hammer, um, presumably like sitting on gold of some sort, right? Then you hop over to the derivative dwarf, and it's another. It's also flat, and there's a decent amount of shading, but the dwarf itself is like mixed with gold. The it's almost Picasso esque um, in the in the way the face looks. Um, the background is just a pure blank, right? It is, a, it is, it is a different art style, frankly. It's probably a different artist. So I do, I, I do believe all of the backgrounds were done by the same artist. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I knew, I thought there were, I know there are multiple artists on this. I didn't know what the distribution yes. was. This was from the, I am taking this from a, a mention in a, an interview. Um, okay. it was a YouTube interview, but I, I believe I am remembering correctly that what Daniel said was that the backgrounds are all by uh, one person and uh, like cover and some of the other interstitial stuff were by the other folks. Uh, okay. And I believe, I believe the backgrounds are by Dirk Detweiler Lighty. Um, Hell I could yeah, be then. wrong, but uh, uh, that, that uh, Dirk has some range. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so part so part of the reason that's great is because looking at cool pictures is fun, as as we all know. The other part that's great is is the special for the derivative dwarf. The special is uh, as twenty two dwarf. So dwarfs may eat gems and rare metals as food replacements. You in fact vastly prefer the taste of rare minerals to mundane food. And then the neck, but additionally. To non-dwarf eyes, you look like any other dwarf. Only dwarfs can see the derivative or uninspired parts of your creation. Other dwarfs will com- other dwarves will completely ignore you since you remind them of their fading novelty. You have plus four sneak versus dwarfs. Um, there are so many things I love about that, right? Yeah, that's that's, that's really good. <laughs> um, when when the sentence says only dwarfs can see the derivative or uninspired parts of your creation. I don't know about you. My brain immediately goes to, oh, you have like minus sneak to dwarfs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Or or if it's not a direct, you know, thing, it's like they'll get mad at you, whatever. Like there's some sort of like antagonistic relationship. Uh, and then it's it's shifting to like they remind <laughs> you remind them of their fading novelty. It was just like, oh, shit, that's funny. Like, that's just good comedy writing. <laughs> It it is, uh, and it's also I uh, I'm reminded of uh, I'm reminded of the China Meville novel, The City in the City. Sure, um, yeah. But like uh, specifically, because like I love that that take on sneak. Where if you're not familiar with the City in the City, there's two cities in one place, and I don't want to say much more because 
I, I don't care about spoilers, but that book genuinely is like fun to discover what's going on, I think. But like the idea of the reason why you can sneak is because they just they see you. They just mm-hmm. are not going to they they just refuse to acknowledge you no matter what that means. They extremely uh, do not want to see you. Yeah. Yeah, I just <laughs> even I, though they see you. <laughs> I love it, right? Like think about it in a combat scenario where you like you're fighting like you're a derivative dwarf and you're fighting actual dwarfs and the actual dwarfs are just like I, I, I understand what's going to happen here and I do not care. I do uh-huh. not see <laughs> that derivative fucking dwarf. Like it's just oh, it's good. It's good. Because I have a deep-seated pride that I that is wounded by your existence, even though, yeah. like, we made you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very it's good. so good. Um, but yeah, should we talk, uh, should we talk rules? Yeah, I, I, I kind of was thinking we should just kind of hit on the stuff that we think is most interesting, and then we can sort of fill in gaps as we need to. <sighs> then we got to talk initiative. Yeah, that's exactly where I was thinking we should start. Is that's initiative. the coolest? It's, this is the coolest system or like mechanic in this game. It uh, initiative in this game is very, very interesting and very wild, and uh, is the is the specific thing that prompted me to write in my notes. Uh, balance, never heard of her. Um, <laughs> as a description of sort of the general approach, which isn't even true. I don't think it's not that. Uh, anyway. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of things in Troika that do a thing I like, which is go, what is balance anyway, really, if you think about it? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so why don't you explain how initiative works in this game? You get a bunch of tokens, and you put them in a bag. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe it's worth saying quickly. So, like, the, the way that you do initiative in sort of more traditional RPGs, yes. right, is, like, every player at the table plus the GM roll something. In D&D, you roll, like, a D20. This is pre- pretty traditional. You you get your number, and then your initiative order, which is the order of how you act in the game, is just based on that number, right? So uh, your paladin rolls low, and so paladin goes first, and then two goblins go, and then your priest goes, and then blah, blah, blah. And it's all just based on rolling just, those die. And then, you, and then you loop around, right? And then, yeah, and then you loop around. So, how does it work here? <laughs> I, when I said you put some tokens in a bag, to do this, uh, get a container and a selection of colored dice or other convenient markers, consider poker chips and so on. Um, and then basically, um, characters have two tokens. There is a stack of tokens for all of the enemies altogether. Uh, which is fascinating. We'll dive into that in a second because each type of enemy has its own initiative score as well. Um, And then we have an end of round token, which is whenever that one's pulled, the round is over and you start a new round, Um, which is important for reasons of things like, you know, death checks or uh, drowning checks, you know, people be on fire, stuff like that. Things that need to resolve at the end of a round can happen as the first thing that happens in a round. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you are just pulling identical chits out of uh, a thing that you cannot see. So it could be, you know, a, a three rounds in this game, right? It could be player hits, player hits, end of round. Enemy hits, enemy hits, enemy hits, enemy hits, player hits, end of round. End of round. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um. and so to to like make it really concrete, right? So like, let's say we've got what like a, a party of four characters, mm-hmm. right? And they're yeah. they're fighting like let's say I don't know 
five goblins. <laughs> um, the four the four characters will each contribute two tokens in sort of their color or whatever, right? For two two possible actions in a round. And then the five goblins will do, I think goblins contribute, let's say two or something. Basically it would be, they would do like 10, right? Cause you do five goblins times whatever their, their initiative number is. And so you have, let's say 10 initiative tokens from a goblin, and then you have eight initiative tokens from the players and then uh, one end of round. And so the math starts to get real weird as you start fighting, for instance, bigger monsters or scarier well, things. This is this is what I was going to say. So yeah. gob- I just looked it up. Goblin is a one. Okay, so, but a say one. you had say you had nine goblins and a loathsome worm that will consume the sun. Yeah, God, I hate that worm. <laughs> so that has an initiative of seven. So yeah. now the enemy's initiative as a whole is sixteen. So they'll yeah. have sixteen tokens. And there's no differentiation between the initiative of the loathsome worm that will consume the sun, a stamina 46 monster, and the nine goblins, a stamina 6 monster. So when the GM pulls an enemy token, they just choose. Yeah. They just go, "Mm, okay, this turn I think one of the goblins is going to attack. Or they go, this turn the loathsome worm that will consume the sun is going to attack. And then they pull another one because it's 16 to your 8 and they go, that loathsome worm that will consume the sun, it's going to attack again. And then they pull another. And you could do this until you kill everyone. Um, the game does offhandedly mention, don't do that. <laughs> um, well, so I will say it, do- it It actually mentions that probably, I think, at least twice and maybe three times, which I thought was notable because there's not, there's actually not a lot of repeated information in this game. Mm-hmm. So to me, that actually ended up reading almost more force forceful, right? Interesting. Like, okay. Just because, like, at the first time I read it, it it was very much like, yeah. So this could mean that like uh, the same enemy could act multiple times, right? And then it says in like a parenthetical, like, but the GM should you know not use this for you know ill-gotten gains or something. And then it was mm-hmm. mentioned a couple more times, which just for me like really reiterated it. But I really I, I actually love that this is also one of the few places where Daniel like specifically speaks to rationale and says like. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is a weird mechanic. This is why. I, it doesn't feel like he he does that uh, for most things, where it's like its own separate section in, yeah. <laughs> in the initiative area. But I really liked what he says, right? Which is uh, basically, th- it, this is a randomization me- mechanic, obviously. Um, so it adds a bunch of uncertainty. So you never know like if you're going to act more or mm-hmm. if you're even going to get a chance to act. And... Uh, I'm just going to read the last two sentences of this because I think he says it really well. When actions are not taking place, it represents hesitation, panic, or other incidental delays that can happen in a tense encounter where every second counts. The goblins have few tokens because they are cowardly, not because they're slow. The dragon has many because it knows exactly what it wants, not because it is fast. Which I just thought was like a really really clear and well-stated set of reasons for why this pretty odd mechanic exists and what he's kind of trying to do with it and i i i don't know it really stuck out to me i mean i think it's one of the one of the reasons a lot of this game like we said right like bring up the fighting fantasy stuff to say like yeah this has the same stats as fighting fantasy does right (laughs) <laughs> the initiative in fighting fantasy books does not work like this. Uh, this is like a wholesale, as far as I can tell, this is like wholesale from this game, not taken from anything else. 
And a lot of Troika is is sort of like piecing together other ideas and and bringing them together into a system that works seems at least to me to work extremely well. So it makes sense to me that there's a there's a rationale here where there isn't other places because this is like I think genuinely new as of Troika's uh, publishing. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's good context. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, I did try to figure out like. And a little Googling around, like, initiative approaches or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, peek behind the curtain, my last month of my life has been a little wild, and so <laughs> didn't didn't follow through on that as fully. But that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. My, um, yeah. And, and in general, I, I think it, that's, that's the, it's, I'm glad you pointed it out, because that's the other thing I have ended up sort of coming to, which is, I, I looked a little bit into fighting fantasy, not as much as you did, especially on the historical stuff, but mm-hmm. the initiative was the thing that seemed most sort of unique and sort of, uh, yeah, like a sort of the biggest addition in terms of mechanics, it seemed like. Yeah, and it's, um, and to me, I think, again, as somebody who's like very peripheral to the OSR scene, but has read, you know, stuff here and there, um, this to me seems in some ways the most in line with other OSR stuff where like, like you, like you mentioned, right. That like there, there is very clear, like balance. Who, who is she <laughs> energy here? Um, and that is like a, a thing, a feeling I get from having read a number of like people talking about OSR sp- stuff, especially right. Is like the point is not to have a well-balanced game. The point is to, have player agency and, you know, just run around and, you know, kill some goblins or whatever and tell goofy stories. Yeah. Um, and uh, what what is more indic- or like uh, conducive to a goofy story? A very strict turn t- uh, like turn-based combat or a bag of possibilities, each one of which could lead you to a spectacular win or an absolutely crushing defeat. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's worth saying, right, given what we've said earlier, an absolutely crushing defeat that then, according to the rules of the game, you can just roll a new character while other people are playing and suddenly appear in the scene because you're in in the world of Troika in which people appear and disappear at whim and at Uh random. Um, Which is like, again, it's... it, uh, It is... The joke about it not being balanced, the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized it's very specifically balanced, actually. <laughs> it's just balanced for things that m- most games don't want to balance for, which is, uh, he. there's a mention at some point, maybe it's in the enemies thing, too, of, like, he talks a little bit about, like, how he thought about the enemies in the book and how they, like, what their initiative sort of numbers were, were part of balancing, right? Because, like, this is why a goblin is a one and a dragon is a seven, is, like, there is some balance here, right? Because you sh- right. you don't want to necessarily die to four goblins, right? But you can. Yeah, you can. <laughs> and, and, like, you might, right? You absolutely mm-hmm. might. And, like, I just... Again, like it's balanced. It's just balanced for this very specific thing, which is really swingy combat that is more about using your weird people to do fun and weird things, right? Yeah, and and potentially losing them and not yeah. treating that as like a huge fail state. And that's like yeah. part of why the you have to roll is such an important aspect of this, right? Is like, well, and you like, don't get to write your your seven yeah. page single spaced backstory about your character who's like, who who's like whatever parent is fridged or whatever, and 
et cetera, et cetera, and then come to the table and lose that character and be like, and feel like you lost a bunch of work that you've done. You roll two dice, you get a, you get a weird dude and you go, let's go fucking, <laughs> let's yeah. go to a tavern and then fight some shit or whatever. Um, and then if you die, you die. And, and, you know, as you tell the story, as your character advances, you're slightly less likely to die, but you're still extremely likely to die. That is a thing that I think people at least think that old school D&D did and and want to get back to and I, I appreciate that even though I you know I I jumped in on third edition so I never I never experienced the the real game you know what I mean <laughs> yeah well and but like if you are the sort of player who wants that kind of narrative through line or rich backstory or whatever like you can still do that in this game right like mm-hmm. I was just thinking about good old Bongle Duck Height right <laughs> so let's say Bongle Duck Height who's a monkey monger he dies in our second encounter or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. My next character, I could just decide ahead of time, that's going to be Jongle Duck Height. Uh-huh. Bo- Bongle's sister. And like, uh-huh. uh, you can do, like, you can still do some of that stuff, right? And you totally. still absolutely can own these characters and you can tell a narrative you're interested in because there are so many gaps because like it gives you enough room to like I don't know, I, if I had dice with me I could just roll but I don't I don't have any dice with me and I don't want to get up um but you know like Here, just I got pick, them. hold on great okay uh, pick me a random background roll I got a one and a six. six you got so a six 16. okay 16 and so jungle duck height is a clavager. The key masters wander the universe, fathoming the workings Fuck, of yeah. all entryways. Though they're quite fascinated with simple chests and doors, they are most excited by metaphysical and metaphorical barriers. You might find small conclaves of clavagers camped around the feet of demon gates, debating appropriate methods of attack or building obscure machines of entry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the possessions is festooned with keys, and mm-hmm. it counts as modest armor, which is yes. very good. <laughs> um... But, like, even it's a distinguished sledgehammer, which is damage as a maul. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, you could start being like, ah, oh, okay, well, mauls and clubs are sort of similar, like, direct impact weapons. And so we train mm-hmm. to get blah, blah, blah. But then we train. Mm-hmm. Like, you, it just it just all tumbles out. Because, again, yeah. at, like, it just feels very aware of its limitations. And it feels very purposeful about the limitations of what it gives you and where the gaps are. Very impressive. Troika is also just because of the elliptical like world building, right? Oh yeah. If I was if I was GMing a game and and Bongle Duckheit died, mm-hmm. and you said I'm gonna roll up a new character and, they, and their name's gonna be Bongle Duckheit, they're gonna be the real Bongle Duckheit. Yeah. <laughs> the, the previous one yeah. was an imposter who was yeah. like who had stolen my name and my backstory. I would this be like, fu- this yes. Fucking, this fucking monkey monger stealing uh-huh. my identity. I'm a clavager. I don't Everyone knows Bongle fucks with keys, not monkeys. Exactly. <laughs> this is who I am. Yeah. And 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 then we're and then we discover through play, is that true? Or yeah. is is the new Bongle an imposter? Like, yeah. Just so many possibilities left by those huge huge gaps in in the world building that that's excite me so much <laughs> yeah and and excite i mean right excite me too how often do i talk about specific actions i would take based on a system and playing it never i like never talk about that <laughs> ever um but that's, like yeah <laughs> this, this is like it i don't know that i like i i play it i guess but like i'd play it in the same way i play other things or like it just 
I, I'm more interested in playing with it in my brain. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like it just it beg it begs me to fill in those gaps, and so it's very yes. natural to start b- filling them in, which is is cool. Uh, yeah, and and like you said, I think uh, very correctly earlier, right? Like. When I, what I was saying was the, like, sort of GM advice is actually the reading advice, because yeah. on some level, not to go back to the Cannibal Halfling Gaming's discussion we had, but, like, on some level, reading this book is playing it um, in a way that I think is true of all game books, but is made much more obvious. Like, yeah. the simple act of reading this is, is, is a kind of play on its own, and that also rules. Yeah, hundred percent. And actually, one of the things I heard in one of the interviews, I, I don't, I, I don't know that I, I have a bad way of doing research for this podcast, which is I start a lot of different interviews with people, or like start a bunch of actual plays and then never finish them. Um, uh-huh. So I think I started three different actual plays of the podcast or of this <laughs> game and never finished one of them. You listened to fifteen episodes of a podcast, I think. I got through about ten. I'm oh, okay. probably still going to finish it, but um, it. It's interesting. Um, yeah. They played it so much differently than I expected. It. I expected it would play at my own table that I was like, this is worth yeah. experiencing. <laughs> That's interesting. And, and I feel similarly about the, the beginnings of the two actual play like YouTube things I was watching is they, mm-hmm. they, they felt pretty different. Anyway, the point I was getting to, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe, is uh, I've actually forgotten it now. What was the point I was getting to? I was going to make a point about the gaps. I don't remember. Oh well. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> listener. I was gonna make a brilliant point, and now you don't. Now you don't get to hear it. Uh, okay. Well, rules. <laughs> so we've done initiatives. Rules. Do we want to yeah. talk? I-, I was thinking I could cover some of the like real basic stuff. So like, uh, basically, to do most actions in the game, you're gonna do one of two types of kind of contests, right? So yeah, we haven't even talked about rolling under versus rolling versus, have we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which kind of it, it seems fine. Like we, I feel like we've talked about initiative, so now we can talk about this. Which is yeah, uh, you're either gonna roll under or you're gonna roll versus, right? So rolling under is you throw two d six with the intention of scoring equal to or under a number. This is usually if like you're trying to. So like my monkey monger, good old Bongle. Uh, mm-hmm. Bongle has uh, a four in climb, actually. Um, and so my skill was, I think, six. And so mm-hmm. I would be, if I was trying to climb a wall and I needed to do a skill check with climb, I would be rolling 2d6 and trying to roll under my climb total skill, which is 10. So, like, because I have a high skill uh, in climbing, I have a better chance of r- rolling under. Um, when I'm unopposed. And then roll versus is exactly. you you roll 2d6 and you add any of your skill bonuses and you're usually rolling against like an enemy or you're rolling against another player or something like that. So these are sort of like battle or if it's other types of like a strength contest or something, right? Um, and those are, those are really it. That's basically like, th- that is how most, pretty much every action in the game kind of works is... Roll under if it's unopposed, usually, or roll versus if it's sort of opposed and against another player or another enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then every time you use an advanced skill, you can sort of y- y- like get a little tick to it if you succeed, and that helps you continue to sort of level up. And then the last thing, sort of about actions or like combat things like that, is luck. So one of y- so you have three skills as a reminder: you have s- skills, stamina, luck, um, or I guess stats are what these are. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, and so the other thing you can do with luck is basically if you are doing a thing and you fail, right? You can sort of test your luck to sort of avoid the consequences of the fail. Yes. And so you you basically lose, you like spend your luck to do that, and then you can slowly regain luck. Yeah, so test your luck is a, is a roll under um, whatever your luck is, and every time you roll it, I think, is it if you succeed or is it just whenever you test that you lower your luck by one? I believe it is whenever you test. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure that's right also. but Yeah, roll equal to or less than your current luck score. Every time you test, reduce your current luck by one, regardless of successful or not. And so, yeah, and so then you, you can regain uh, basically every eight hours rest. So, like, if you sleep for the night. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, interestingly, you cannot, on your character, ever go above whatever your luck score is from the beginning. So... Yes. That role is actually pretty pretty important at the beginning. Yeah. And a- as a reminder, to when you when in character creation you roll two D six and you add six to whatever you've gotten, and that is just your luck. That yeah. is that is it. Yep. And then stamina, just to go over the other stat, is health, right? So yeah. stamina goes down to zero, you're in danger of dying. Um, uh, th- there's dying things. I didn't find them all that interesting, so I wasn't going to go into them. But um, um, I, th- I think the fact that if you're un- if something hits you and it takes you to negative one, you're just fucking dead. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> there is there is no wiggle room. There's no you know fucking uh, uh, fourth edition or fifth edition style death saves. It's just like at zero. You're real fucked, and that's when you get a sort of a death save system. But if they hit you for five and you have four stamina left, like, you're out. Roll up another character. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, I think the next, like, big sort of rule thing that I found interesting was there's a there's a section where he goes through and talks through specific actions um, you can do. And there's the regular stuff, right? There's, like, hitting somebody versus sort of ranged attack. There's delaying. There's moving. But the one I wanted to talk about is your inventory, yeah, this one I had to read a couple times, and I'm still not entirely sure I, like, fully understand it. Should I give you my understanding and you can correct me, or do you want to you give me your high level? Yeah, why don't, why, don't you, why don't you see how you've read this, and then we can figure out it, what our collective understanding is. Okay, so I'm, I'm paging away from the PDF. I'm going in just from, from I have the top. No, I, listener, I have no way of confirming this. B could be lying to all of us right now. I could be, and I often do. Um, so your inventory is you just have 12 slots, right? Mm-hmm. Each of those slots, like, um, most things take up one slot. Um, mm-hmm. So if you have, like, arrows or whatever, that takes up one slot, unless you have, like, a shit ton of arrows. Um, thing, I think large things, like things that would require you to use two hands to carry them, take two slots. Um, and then, like, giant things could theoretically take up more slots. Mm-hmm. But everyone just has a baseline 12, uh, 12 slots of inventory. Correct. Nothing has weight attached to it, which is why it's interesting that there is an encumbrance system here. Because just because you have 12 slots doesn't mean you can only carry 12 things. You could carry more things. It just progressively encumbers you more. Uh, more than 12 slots worth of things, rather, um, c- which could encumber encumber you more. 
Um, and then there's the very weird system of getting items out of your bag, which is the part that I'm like extremely unclear on. Mm-hmm. If I if I recall correctly, um, you want things that are things that you need to access more regularly at the top of your bag. So like literally on your character sheet, there's like 12 slots and things at the top are easier to access because I guess it's just, it's just a rollover. Is that right? Well, yeah. So, I mean, the thing you have not said, which I think I feel like is important to state is if you need to retrieve something from your inventory. So something that you are not holding in your hands. Yes. You have to roll 2d6 and score equal to or higher than its position on your inventory list. Meaning you want the most, the thing you need to retrieve the most often you want in slot one, right? Because uh, the thing you're trying, what? You can't miss that. Um, Correct. Exactly. Right. So like uh, the, the lowest you're ever going to roll is slot two. And because the rule is you have to score equal to or higher, what that means is if you need something in slot six, you have to roll slot. You have to roll a six or higher. Um, on 2d6. Yeah. On 2d6. Because what you're what you're doing is like, I just, I think spatially this, like, is this is the way that this has made sense to me is you're literally reaching your hand in a bag that is like, v- goes down vertically for 12 levels and Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're basically deciding with your dice how far down you can reach in which is great uh i just think it's really like very clever and annoying (laughs) and like uh a really fun take on like so i've 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 been playing a little bit of a game called path of exile which is like a you know it's like an action rpg like diablo or something and all of those games love the inventory puzzle where you get a very limited inventory Mm -hmm. and you're constantly being like fuck can i keep these boots and this sword that's good or do but i need these potions you're basically doing that but more abstractly um yeah and i just think it's very i just think it's very fun and so that to to jump to the encumbrance real quick because it's it, it is related right is if you're overburdened so if you find yourself carrying more than your 12 slots or the 12 items you suffer minus four to all rolls due to the inconvenient weight <laughs> if you are carrying more than 18 or 18 or more you suffer the minus four and you can barely move and you you uh, essentially are like uh, you're unawares is the is the exact wording used in the book um so people can coup de gras you very easily exactly it's, yeah. basically it's a you know this is like a backstab for a rogue or whatever right yeah um all right, I'm now back on the thing. Um, dropping things in a hurry is very qu- very good. Also, it, and that's um, that's where I was gonna that's where I was yeah. gonna go la- next. Right is and yeah. so the the final piece of this is you need to retrieve an item, uh, and it the if to use an item that's just a regular action, and as long as it's in your hands, so as long as you've retrieved it, you can just do it, not a problem. But yeah, the. <laughs> You you basically can roll a 1d6 if you need to just, like, get rid of stuff. And what that 1d6 will tell you is how many slots worth of things you can just, like, throw on the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is very funny. Or uh, or you can go, I actually don't care if they break, so then you can roll 2d6 worth. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I guess that's kind of all I had there for the inventory. I just, I thought it was, I thought there was a lot of really clever and interesting stuff. And, like... 
Uh, I mean, I guess we t- we talked about this before the podcast. I guess this is this is a place where I will reference Kostikian. Um, ah, but like, I do think this is a really interesting and fun example to think through around struggle and like, sure, what, right? Like, what? Do, like, I, I'm not even saying we need to necessarily do that here, but like, that is. Uh, what the struggle of inventory is doing here is really interesting to me and like uh, sort of how it sort of fits in with all the rest of the mechanics is something that immediately jumped out to me. I don't have any concrete thoughts really, but like I just thought it was really, I just thought it was, it was both really funny and also really clever um, and also like pretty complete as like a little mini system, which uh, in some ways the initiative, or sorry, not the initiative, the inventory stuff ended up feeling like a good kind of like example of why I think Daniel Sell is really good at this and why I think Troika is really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's it, right? Like I, if I were to pick out two things from the, maybe this whole book to just like point someone to, to be like someone who's already obviously very familiar with, with role-playing games, just be like, this is the kind of shit you can get out of Troika. Yeah. Yeah. It it might literally be the initiative and in the in the um, inventory system because like you know you can point to any number of backgrounds and be like and you can see that and be like oh this is a really interesting thing or you could point to you know parts of the um, the 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 example uh, thing the blank mage and thistle or whatever mm-hmm. um, there's like so much stuff you could point to that would read as like oh yeah this is a particularly good example of a thing that I am used to in role playing. Um, but I think these two things, the, the initiative and inventory are such good examples of just like, here is, here is a, yeah, like you said, here is a complete miniature system that interlocks with so many, like with all the other mechanics and other systems within this whole thing in a way that like, I don't know. I feel like if I read those, I would be like, I gotta play this game (laughs) partially because I read those and I was like, I gotta play this game. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Um, well, so I mean, there's there's definitely more stuff in the rules, but I I feel like, uh, I yeah, like I feel like we've covered a lot of the the stuff that I find most interesting. I will say I I, I really liked the writing around henchmen, yeah, which is uh there it it shows up in two places. So it shows up in <laughs> there's a section called other concerns in the rules, uh, which I love. Uh, and there's a section in there about henchmen, which is basically for for the GM, right? So henchmen are created as you would a monster. They're their own people with their own motivations and are not just pieces of equipment. And then the overall thing is uh, henchmen are hired help, right? And so they will help out the party. They will engage in combat. They each will provide a, an additional initiative token, on top of the player's one, so that that can help you out even the odds against enemies. When a henchman token is drawn, the GM is the one who decides what they do, but, and this is the sentence I was thinking about in particular, the GM should take the wishes of the players under advisement, but act in the best interests of the henchman. Which I like, because, again, I feel like there's, like, a lot in the, just this one little tiny thing uh, in terms of just how, like, he basically spends two paragraphs on this in the entire book, um, mm-hmm. But I feel like he draws really uh, like a really clear picture of like henchmen can be a wide variety of things. And in fact, henchmen probably should be interesting in their own right and not just a brute. Right. Which is, I think, how henchmen end up getting used in more traditional RPGs. Totally. And I just thought, again, it's just a really good example of like 
taking something that is pretty familiar and just tweaking it a little bit and then without going into a ton of detail and being super long-winded, a thing that I am very good at being <laughs> uh, in this podcast that multiple <laughs> multiple episodes are over two hours or something. Um, but like he just very quickly goes like, this is what it is. This is how it's different from how you're expecting. And this is sort of what to do with it. So... This is a good example of why, for me, doing the quick thing of, like, rolling up an encounter was uh, extremely clarifying. Sure, yeah. Um, Because, not to spoil this, but um, I I did need to look up the rules for henchmen. And a thing that I didn't really think about when I was just sort of reading the book, like, just enjoying it, um, thinking about what, what we might talk about here, what, you know, what my reactions to it were was the line that um, they each provide one initiative token to the stack. And, th- and, th- and then when I was, like, creating what potentially could be a henchman, I was like, hmm. This is a... This is a type of enemy that has two initiative. So when they become a henchman, they don't keep their initiative, Right they drop down to half as much initiative as usual. And I was like, why would that be the case? Um, you know, the game, the game, <laughs> the game uses initiative to break its own balance in certain ways, right? Why would the initiative then need to be balanced specifically for henchmen? And I could think of a, th- a few ideas, right? Like, um, players going to recruit the, whatever, what the, to do there's a there's an enemy called a piscian piscian i don't know it's got six initiative or no that has six stamina sorry um where it was where's that uh where's that worm <laughs> where's that fucked up worm uh, uh let's say the manacore enemy right manacores have an initiative of five if you had, if you had a manacore henchman and they kept their initiative that would change shit really elaborately right every player character has two initiative and so you kind of balance the fights around that right like that's or that's one of the ways that the gm can reintroduce certain amounts of balance um and that would that would potentially get really thrown off because the henchmen would be acting potentially like twice as much if not at least as much as as uh as the party and and then the enemies would have way less opportunities for action theoretically I don't know. Um, I, I didn't really come to a conclusion other than that, like, setting all henchmen at a single initiative is a really interesting move that makes it very clear that the henchmen should be their own thing, but they should not be the focus of the story also, right? Or they should not necessarily take over. Because they could be an extremely strong person with, like, a super weapon that, like, when they do get to go, they could, might really fuck something up. But they're their likelihood of going, no matter how many of them you have, is equal to the likelihood of the round ending and half as much of as any player getting to go. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll be honest, I mostly assumed the choice to half or whatever, the choice to take their initiative down was because if you don't do that, then the players are never going to go and it's just going to be the GM acting. Um, 
And that too, right. <laughs> 100% that too, right? Like it's, I, this is what I mean partially and what I'm assuming we agree on here when talking about an, the initiative thing as its own sort of like closed system that like works such interesting things on everything else, right? Because there is the, there is the very basic game balance stuff and then there's the sort of implications of it um, all throughout the rest of, of the game that I think is cool. <laughs> yeah. I also, anyway. think, I also think it's cool. <laughs> Um, so the, the rest of the book, I think it's worth kind of just laying out quickly, right? Like the rest of the book, uh, we're at page 51 ish is sort of the end of sort of just the rules proper. And then the rest of the book are three big sections of, uh, advanced skill descriptions where goes through and basically talks through a lot of skill descriptions. I guess there's maybe four sections. And then there's an item section where uh, Daniel Cell lists, like gives some information about how to use items and then lists off a shit ton of items. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then spells, same thing as I just said, talks through mm-hmm. how you spell, h- how you cast spells um, very briefly. <laughs> he, just, he just teaches you the alphabet. Um, and then teaches, <laughs> teaches you the alphabet, which is helpful. Um, and then after after that, you get uh, an enemies section, which is, again, similar. There's a little more information about sort of, and this is the other place where they talk a little bit about, like, sort of rationale and why things are the way they are. But the, the basic idea is here, here's how enemies work. Here's sort of how initiative works for enemies. And this is where you int- the, he introduces the mean system, the M-I-E-N, which I referenced earlier about the monkeys that the monkey monger has. Um I- believe that's pronounced mien mien okay um which is basically uh the gm can roll a d6 and there's a table for most if not all enemies that sort of basically say their attitude or their sort of emotional state etc and then it's a bestiary and it's a lot of it's a lot of beasts and a lot of a lot of stuff that's cool to read and then the very the very final section of the book is an introductory sort of like scenario or adventure called the blank mange and this thistle so I was thinking we could kind of just talk through these sections and some of these may be kind of short. I think most of them will be, yeah. Yeah, but kind of just talk through if there's anything that's like sort of stuck out in particular. So like we can kind of start with the skills. If there were any sp- particular skills you wanted to call out. Yeah, we can talk about skills. I don't know that I have a ton to say about skills. Sure. Um, I've, got, I've got a couple cool. things. Uh, a yeah. couple of them uh, I can point out then. The the first thing I, I was going to bring up in skills I've already talked about, which is the you may notice some skills and backgrounds that don't exist. Just make them up. Fucking rules. Yeah. Still good. It's great. <laughs> uh, and then the other ones, I, so like uh, again, just to give a sense of sort of how this reads, right? So the first one is acrobatics used for rolling, balancing, falling, jumping, etc. That makes sense. Super straightforward. You scroll to the next page, and then you also see one of the skills, which is Golden Barge Pilot. You sure do. (laughs) Test this to navigate between the stars on a ship with golden mirror sails. And up to this point, you there is some indication throughout the backgrounds and stuff like that that like there are multiple dimensions happening here, kind of, or something like that. But I don't recall a whole lot of indication of space flight. Oh, because... let me, uh, let me go back to page one. Oh, I have to find it. There we go. Beyond that, I'm quoting now from page one of the book. Beyond that, what you have here is Troika. 
a science fantasy RPG in which players travel by Eldritch Portal and non-Euclidean Labyrinth and golden-sailed barge between the uncountable crystal spheres strung delicately across the humpbacked sky. Fair. Yeah. So, like, you're right and also a little wrong. <laughs> I'm... I'm I am subjectively correct and objectively wrong. Exactly, <laughs> which is which is feels like a good summary of Troika uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I wanted to mention those. I also wanted to mention Poison because this is the first time that uh, this sort of right. mechanic is, I think, mentioned. So the Poison skill uh, says you may test this skill during downtime to create a single dose of poison. Pick which kind it is when you make it. This list is not exhaustive. More exotic ones may be available if you possess the knowledge and ingredients. Uh, and so it's just a table. It's a 1D3 table with three options. Uh, the first one causes anyone ingesting it to test their luck or lose 4D6 stamina, which is huge. Yeah. Add one to all damage rolls while this is applied to piercing or edged weapons. Uh, if you roll a one for damage, the poison has worn off. And again, I just think that in and of itself is like a really clever thing that <laughs> is worth thinking about. So like mm -hmm. you you have a poison that basically makes your all of your weapons, your piercing or edged weapons better, except if you fuck up and then somehow your poison is gone. Which I yeah. love. This game loves a, uh, a a big success and a big fail. Absolutely, it's like um. it is basically balanced to be swingy, right? Like yeah, exactly. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to talk about is just the last thing listed, which is just listed as other. Um, and it's just reinforcing <laughs> the thing we've said, right? Which is uh, if a skill isn't listed here, then make it up. Anything can be a skill, from jousting to gambling to eating. Skills are primarily used as flavor and the occasional fun instance where your incredibly specific and heretofore useless ability helps you and your friends out is priceless. And I just think, it, again, I'm just at this point pointing out things that I think are good summaries of why Troika is delightful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, that does remind me of a thing that I said we would come back to that we didn't quite. Um, sure. Which was in the... Um, in the rules section, it's the advancement thing. Oh, yes. Um, mm -hmm. The so so like you mentioned before, um, the way you advance skills basically is whenever you successfully use a skill, you mark it, and then whenever you rest, you can sort of test against that skill to see if you um, advance it. The way you learn new skills, um, I'm scrolling for this, so I'm going to just start shooting from the hip here again. Um, the way you learn new skills is advanced skills specifically, um, is because your skill is just set, uh, is you have to find somebody willing to train you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and specifically somebody who's better at the skill than you. Yes. So theoretically, you know, if you have, uh, a companion who is the monkey monger, for instance, um, who has two trapping naturally. Yeah. And you want to learn trapping. I could, I, my player character could uh, go over to, is it, was it Bongle? It was Bongle. Mm -hmm. I could go to Bongle and say, hey, would you be willing to train me for, and what I need to pay you? Or like, what's the deal? And you could be like, oh, I could, I'll train you for free. Or you could, uh, I could, you could make me pay you. And then if you have, you want a skill that no one in your party has, you have to find a trainer specifically. Like you have to seek out somebody in the world. Um, and it takes like a week or something like that. Is that right? 
So training takes one week plus one week per rank you already have in the advanced skill you are right. looking to improve. And then at the end of this time, you get one chance to advance it. Right. <laughs> Uh, and and the way the way you advance the advanced skill so so to the the distinction just to be super clear right is there's basically two ways of advancing there's advancing a skill you already have in which you if you succeed at it you have a chance like you get a tick and you have a chance to improve it and then you can learn new advanced skills via the thing we've just talked about where you find somebody, but that's also a way you could try and train an advanced skill you already have, but train it more than just sort of that one tick, right? So if you trained with somebody for three weeks, you could take a three skill possibly up to, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess it would only go up one because the success yeah. is still only one. So that's interesting yeah. because now I'm, un- yeah. I'm, I'm wondering why would you train an advanced skill with somebody versus I guess if you've never had a chance to use it because the skills are so weird. So if for instance, (laughs) yes, if for instance, you are a gold, you have a two golden barge pilot, but for some (laughs) reason you've never been able to run across a golden barge, but Uh you're very excited to get your golden barge pilot up to three, then you would need Mm -hmm. to go find a better golden barge pilot than you and train with them for, three weeks to get a chance to improve it uh two or three two or yes. three um and I, I can imagine other things right like uh say your 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 campaign just happens to have you know a month of downtime built into the narrative or whatever you yeah. could be like well i'm gonna spend that month you know three of those weeks i'm gonna go train with a with you know um, eliezer the the golden barge pilot that we've intera- interacted with yeah or whatever um or if you were just like I, I suspect you know next, uh, next the next hook is going to be that we're going to get on a golden barge and I've only got one in it and I I need to know how to fly that fucking thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you could pitch the GM on on training it even though you haven't uh, had the opportunity yet. And uh, did you notice the the sort of the the clever thing or the thing I find clever about the difference in how you advance in the two scenarios? I I do not know what you mean. So when you are advancing uh, a skill you have and that has a tick next to it, you are trying to roll over your sc- current skill total. So when you are yourself advancing your skill, you're trying to roll over. When you're learning a new advanced skill from a trainer huh. or you're training, in order to succeed, you have to roll under. And the the explanation is included in the book in a parenthetical, which is precocious students are easier to teach. So uh, when you're learning yourself, you need to roll <laughs> over your current skill to show that you've mastered it. And if you're learning from somebody else, you need to roll under your current skill to rec- like to sort of, I guess, mark the fact that you were learning from somebody sort of more skilled than you. Uh, and I just thought that was a very That's... clever fascinating yeah i thought that was really good um right yes because i forgot there's also the bit that's like yeah so if you're rolling over you theoretically couldn't get past a 12 by just using the thing correct um yes you but there is a there is a rule for that which is just if you roll a 12 on anything that's 12 or higher you you will still improve it but you know that's a extremely low possibility you have to crit basically yeah you you have to roll a 12 twice to once you once you hit 12 
in your skill. Oh, Jesus. You have to crit twice. Yeah. You have to crit <laughs> twice. So you have to hit 12, and then you have to hit 12 a second time. Uh, uh-huh. Which, again, like in terms of the beauty of this little system, it just feeds right back into what the system wants you to do, right? Which is like, if you're at a place where you're trying to advance a skill past 12, you should probably be letting go of that character uh, in this world, right? Like, Yes. um, And so the mechanics just reinforce that. Uh, But because of the training thing, there is still a possibility, like a more Mm -hmm. real possibility than hitting two 12s in a row, which is like, you just have to take two months off. You have to take two months off find somebody who is has a higher than 12 skill yes sorry three months (laughs) and and then uh yeah it would be three months i guess you're right and then you get one chance after the three months to roll under 12 to be fair you would at that point you would likely get going to yeah almost almost certain yeah um um but that's so wild right yeah it's okay yeah I'm glad we I'm glad we we dug into that. Yeah, um, me too. Um but yeah, I mean I think the skill stuff we can probably then move past. So the next thing yeah. is items. Um starts in a very similar way to how the rest of these lists are except for backgrounds, which is basically if an if an item isn't listed here, uh here's here's a way to handle it, but also this is an incomplete list, go ahead and just add stuff in. So basically an item adds plus 1 to rolls uh when you're rolling like a skill check, either a roll under or a roll versus. Uh, or roll over. But uh, the one wrinkle here is if you, for instance, don't have any training in lock picking, uh, so you don't have that skill, even if you have, or I guess the skill is locks technically, even if you ha- somehow have picked up a lock pick, you still don't have the skill lock, right? Right. So you can't use it to just modify your base skill roll. It has to modify the advanced skill that Correct. it's associated with. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then he has, you know, a few pages, a couple pages of some items that, you know, give a good, I think, sense of, again, the range of stuff. I don't, I don't know if there's anything here that jumped out at you. Um, I think the, the, like, plasmic cores are, like, the thing. They're crystallized starlight cast in metal or astral vapors class captured in glass or maybe hard ghosts. Whatever it is, it's pretty, use, it's pretty and uses a fuel source for exotic weapons and reckless magicians. Um. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna this say you've got to read yeah. the next sentence. <laughs> <laughs> um, a plasmic core can be cracked open and huffed by a wizard in place of spending stamina on a spell because that's how spells work, which we'll get to in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if an oops table roll is called for, the wizard has overdosed and drops dead, foaming at the mouth. Again, um, love it. Like <laughs> just, just good, just good all over. Uh, just, just a, a little, a little hit of uh, of world building. Um, a very fun, like alternative use that you wouldn't necessarily think of off the top of your head, but that like indicates that this game is 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 well designed. And then a very fun consequence. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll, I'll call out a couple more that are pretty quick, but I just thought were like, again, flavorful and fun. So I really like Pocket Gods. Um, yeah. Uh, because the name Pocket Gods uh, indicates one thing. And then the description are little cloth puppets that made in the image of numerous gods. If you whisper a secret to one and throw it away, you regain one luck. <laughs> um, which somehow both undermines. And then also when you start thinking of like what luck is used for it's also like, oh, that actually is actually kind of powerful because <laughs> you, yeah, okay, uh, like it's both very funny and jokey, and then also thinking about it mechanically, I was like, oh, wait, that's actually great. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
And the the last one I was going to bring up is just um, salt, because again, it just feels like a good example of this thing, which is uh-huh. it just says salt. And the description yep. is, salt is the poor man's silver. Where silver kills the demonic and the dead, salt merely harms or bars. Again, I, like, I, yeah, I don't know that I have much more to say here. I just, I thought some of these were cool, and I, it mostly, it is, it's just hammering home the point of, like, this book is is very coherent in a way that, is very impressive to me. And like the system yes. of mechanics is also very coherent in a way that is very impressive to me. Um, yes. And, and I also love that items is a much shorter list, right? Yeah. Than, than spells or uh, skills. And I, and I think that's, that's important here, right? Speaking to both the way it is, it, it, it coheres, but also the way it uh, it's, you know, disjointed or, or full of holes, right? Like, it gives you enough to be like, hey, here's sort of what we're talking about when we're talking about items. The amount of items that are in the backgrounds is way bigger than the amount oh, yeah. of items listed here. 100%. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's another instance of it just being like, figure it out. Yeah. We, here's, here, is the, here are the tools. Now, when you play, you're going to do it different at your table than the designer might. But that's part, that is the point. Yeah. That is, uh, or at least a huge part of it. Yeah. 100%. Cool. Okay. Uh, next up is spells. So we haven't really talked about this, as you uh, just alluded to a few seconds ago. So I was going to quickly just talk about how spells work. So to cast to cast a spell, you must spend stamina equal to the casting cost. So each of the spells in the book have a casting cost listed. Um, and it's basically you just have to spend health. So you have to spend stamina to be able to cast it. And then you need to roll under, so that we talked about that before, your skill total in the spell you wish to cast. Um, double ones are basically a crit. Um, mm-hmm. They always succeed. Double sixes always fail. And if you get a double six, uh, this introduces the very fun mechanic, which is if you fail at casting a spell, you have to to roll a uh, d6 times 10 plus d6, which is basically a d66. Um on the oops table and that tells you when you fail a spell what happens the very first mention on the oops table is there is a flash followed by a shriek the wizard is now a pig um that's a bad one <laughs> 45 yeah um all exposed liquid within 12 meters turns into curdling milk it's very good uh there's <laughs> there's good ones too right which is uh where is it I just lost it and saw. Oh yeah, thirty-two. The wizard's old face melts off and reveals a handsome new one. <laughs> um, yeah, like it, the there's just there's again some really fun weird stuff in here, but that's basically how spells work. So you spend your stamina, um, you roll under your skill, and then you uh, are able to cast your spell. If you fail, you have to roll on the oops table and take the take the lumps. Yeah, this one I actually do have a couple things that I I thought was very interesting. Yeah, and I think uh, I think yours are yours are sort of of a piece, right? And that I think you were sort of focused on a similar thing. So I have a few other things yeah. that are are sillier because I I really liked how the the ones you picked and why you picked them. So I I I mostly picked ones that are kind of just fun to talk about. Yeah. Um. So so one of the things that struck me when reading through the spells is um. I really like the way, and this is sort of of a piece with what we've been talking about a bunch, right? Um, but like, it, I think it's um, it's especially crystallized here. Um, there's like a 
there's a way that the language is specific or um, intentionally non-specific in some of these spells that like really starts jogging my brain again in that like what would this do in play and how could you um you know engage it in a way to make it do some even weirder things yeah yeah um and and like the the one that like really broke that for me is called um wall of power um and part of that breaking was just like the difference between the name and the description Mm -hmm. um so we got wall of power it's a two stamina spell so whenever you cast it you lose two stamina um what they call a wall is, in fact, a dome. But wizards have always worked in mysterious ways. That's the first sentence on the spell. And I was like, <laughs> fascinating. Um, and then, so yeah, period. The wall is a shimmering bubble that causes 1d6 damage when touched. Nothing may pass without the wizard's permission. Um, and then, parenthetically, it is recommended that they remember to allow air. Period. Uh, it lasts for 12 minutes. So one... The joke is obviously very good. Yes, right? it's like, very funny. Uh, <laughs> um, but then, thinking about it, I was like, "Why a dome? Like this is a this is a this is a game that has spaceships in it, mm-hmm. right? You could you could presumably be out in space and fighting somebody. Why would you Why would you want your wall of power to be a dome rather than a complete circle? You could be underwater. There's There's no a dome seems would seem to imply that it ends at your feet and things could still come up from under you, right? Mm-hmm. And just like having that thought to me was like a you could design such a like if you had uh like a real annoying wizard who you wanted to be like stop fucking casting wall of power every fucking <laughs> combat encounter you could play that in a very fun way. <laughs> just yeah, like, for sure. Um, you know, I'm going to introduce a dwarf who tunnels up from beneath you that you didn't know was there once you cast your wall of power. Now what do you do? Now, like, well, engage with other systems, please. <laughs> well, and he, but here's the thing even about, like, the specificity of language and gaps, right? Because if, you, mm-hmm. if I was that player who's really into using wall of power, I could then say, well, it does actually say it's a bubble. So is it is it a dome or a bubble? Yeah. And I love, like, I genuinely actually really like that, right? Because, like, uh, I think that just ends up becoming the conversation of, like, oh, God, okay. And, like, given the world, maybe it's both. <laughs> and maybe you don't get to choose. Like, it just, again, because the this is a great example of because this is a game that explicitly knows that it is leaving gaps and is telling you i leave gaps i am leaving gaps it suddenly yes. makes the gaps fun for me um yes and like going all the way back to the beginning i think for for jesse right like for a player like my friend jesse it's probably more annoying because you're like i don't i don't want like i don't i'm looking for you to fill this gap but the thing that uh, has, like, the thing I I don't, I do not have a way of articulating the thing I'm about to say, but, like, there is absolutely something to Troika where it's, like, the, these are the, these are productive gaps, and I don't know how to, ex- like, articulate productive versus non-productive gaps exactly, and some of this might just be read, reader, too, right, like, what I'm coming to things with, etc., but... Um, it, it has made me think about that stuff a lot because, and like, I hadn't read this one in depth, but just talking through it now, like, yeah, like this feels like productive sort of ambiguity, right? Um, 
mm-hmm. and like enough specificity that you can act on it, which is really cool. Yes. And and like on some level for me, right? The difference between a productive like um <laughs> like the thing I am describing as an exciting thing, the the use of the specific language to uh, manipulate a situation um, as a GM. There are so many ways that could have been written where I would I would read that and go, oh, Christ, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, totally. yep. This is going to lead to a semantics argument that's going to like just absolutely drag the whole fucking thing down, and we're gonna like everyone's gonna leave the table mad because the GM went, all right, I, I have GM fiat, so or the GM's gonna be like okay, fine, you have worn me down and this cool thing that was going to, like, be an exciting moment is, is I guess, technically disallowed or whatever. Like, like, But there's something in the writing here that is just like, I don't get that sense. And, you know, again, as we say every time, table by table, right? Um, there, you, could, you could read that and get into a semantic argument and, like, and feel that it is a completely non-productive... Uh, sort of lacuna, but like, you know, and this is, you know, like just to get to my other one really quick, as uh, Cole resolves the spell, uh, it's a one stamina spell. This spell turns one's heart into a burning ember of grief. Those under its effects uh, effect are so consumed by grief that they are immune to mind-controlling effects and the non-physical impact of pain lasts until the next rest. Um, and this one for me is as much like there aren't a lot of like huge role play prompts in here, mm-hmm. I don't think. Yeah. Um, and this one's a very good one, yeah. especially because it doesn't indicate who one is, right? Um, this is a spell that when you read the first sentence, you go, oh, that's an offensive spell. And then you read the effects and you're like, well, maybe that's a defensive spell. Yeah. But it's so overwhelmingly sad. It like that yeah. if you 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 basically yeah, you reduce your heart to ash to be like unable to be mind controlled or like you know, to potentially it's sort of like a barbarian rage situation in, in like a D and D, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. You're never gonna get like you're never gonna get hit so hard that you don't keep coming if you have this on you. And it's just like it's so and the, and the way to get rid of it, of course, take it out. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, like, I, I really do love that bit that it just stays. It just stays until you rest uh, again. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I I like I like that one. I also really like that one if I combine it with the the one of the ones I wanted to talk about, which is has a similar feel but for a different effect. Which is, you know, like you you read something called Coal Resolve, and I'm like, I just you know, I've played enough video games and I've played enough like RPGs and like I've read enough tabletop RPGs that like, okay, this is probably going to be some sort of weird defensive thing. And it's like, maybe because you fire immunity or it's like stone skin for a dwarf or something. Right. Uh, and then you read it and it's this like hauntingly just like so sad and so evocative thing. Um, one of my favorites is assassin's dagger, uh, which is a three cost spell. <laughs> And this is like, it's like the inverse of Cole Resolve, right? Where Assassin's Dagger, it's like what you would expect of a spell. You're probably gonna like shoot a knife at somebody. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm going to read it. Evocatively named, but actually quite mundane. The wizard whispers to an object, and that object then seeks out and vigorously and repeatedly bumps into the desired target. <laughs> Obviously, if you whisper to a poison dagger, the result is one thing, while doing it to a letter is another. Travels any distance and always re- arrives, parenthetical, eventually. Um, eventually. <laughs> again, it's like, it's it's two different ways of sort of undermining or subverting your expectations, which I really yeah. like a lot. And like, again, the possibility space of Assassin's Dagger, it, so much of this writing is clearly Daniel Cell continuing to sort of impress upon the reader, this is how this world works, right? We name a thing yeah. Assassin's Dagger, it could also just be the most annoying thing that's ever happened to you and never put you uh-huh. in danger. <laughs> Uh, or it could be post the postal service exactly 100 <laughs> percent. yeah um yeah so I, I don't need to go through a ton more i i think there's probably uh two more i want to quickly mention i'm just trying to double check yeah okay so i'm actually going to talk about three more uh so the three i liked and i wanted to point out were they just felt like they're just fun ones uh, or ones that I thought were interesting. So the first one is Purple Lens, which is a one-cost spell. The recipient's eyes glow purple as they experience an alternative reality where people are kind, their surroundings are beautiful, their food is <laughs> indulgent, and so on. This does not change the reality of things, but it does make them more palatable. Yes. Lasts until they want it to end. <laughs> Yes, it's perfect. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, And then I'm going to jump to the end. I'm going to read Zed, which has, for its stamina cost, a question mark. Uh And the text is only, no one knows what this does, but everyone who has cast it disappears instantly, never to be seen again. And again, like... This book has a has a lot of lists, but like it's also pretty particular about what it includes. And the fact that one of the included spells is is just I don't know how much it costs, I don't know what it does, but you will disappear. Uh-huh. Is just and you will never be seen. Never again. be seen again. Um and there is just yeah, there is something about that that's like you could see a campaign ending with yeah. somebody casting that. Mm-hmm. It, like it actually, it, you know what it reminded me of is uh, the like end moves, the like apex moves that you can get sure. in heart. Um, yeah, which I mostly know from that the season of Friends of the Table. But like there were these moves in heart where basically your character could be working towards a move, and most of these moves were end game moves where your character would die at the end, essentially, or like ascend yeah. to godhood and become a GM NPC or something. Um, yes. Yeah, and so the the last spell I want to talk about is mostly about the sort of the writing and kind of how evocative it is, which is torpor. So T O R P O R three cost spell. This is a this is sort of a, a genre of spell that again I feel like if you play D anD D or play RPGs or like video game RPGs, you're like regular sort of familiar with. And I thought this was just a really interesting take on it. So torpor. Those who study the dead consider it necessary to develop a profound sympathy with their subject. How can you speak with the dead if you don't understand the dead? Torpor helps build post-mortem empathy by causing the necromancer to temporarily die. (laughs) Bodily functions are halted, no food, water, or air is needed, and they are, by most vulgar definitions of the word, dead. 
The spell lasts until ended by the wizard, who remains vaguely aware of their surroundings to the extent of being conscious of sound and movement, but not of what is said or who is saying it. They still take damage from bodily abuse while under the effect and can't indeed become irretrievably dead. (laughs) And there's two things I love. One, this is a completely useless spell that is hilarious and dumb. And two, it is one of the longer spell descriptions in this entire spell section. I think it's one of the longer paragraphs in this book. I think so. <laughs> uh, it It's just, it. Uh, you know, going back to earlier uh, conversations, it, 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 there is a commitment to the bit here that is very yes. impressive to me. Um, yes, absolutely. Cool. Our final big list of stuff is enemies. Um, I don't really know that I feel like i need to cover most of the like rule stuff we've basically talked about the the most important thing i think about enemies which is how initiative is different for them yeah they don't have luck that's also yeah that's impactful in play but it's that's fine yeah and and they tend to have lower this oh this is the thing i was mentioning earlier they they tend to have lower stamina numbers right which is is a balanced thing to try and help make battles move forward right um Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, it, any any enemies you wanna you wanna bring up? Um, I've got a few. Just to, but yeah, just to like uh, continue the theme of me reading about dwarves. Right. Uh, there's a there's an enemy called a drock. Mm-hmm. Dwarfs are creatures of purpose. They set their minds on a course and follow it until they finish or run aground. Occasionally, a dwarf is forcibly prevented from finishing a project, possibly by dropping dead at an inopportune moment. It happens. Usually, this is a sad but inconsequential occasion, but sometimes it happens while they pursue the highest art a dwarf can engage in, creation of a new dwarf. These creatures of raw surfaces, untreated stucco, brass armature, and soggy wet clay seek meaning, dwarfiness, and to be finished by a sure and careful hand. So, yeah, this is the... This is a derivative dwarf that was um, unfinished, um, and they're like not a particularly strong enemy, but it's just like building out the dwarf lore yeah. is so funny to me and like cool at the same time. I don't know. Yeah, that made me happy. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I mean, I feel like that actually sort of the fits in with the the couple of people I was going to talk about, a couple of enemies I was going to talk about, right? Which is so that one of them I've already talked about, which is the Zoanthrop, which I was I was so taken by because. Uh, the Zoanthrop is one of the backgrounds, but then it's also an enemy. And the enemy description, I mean, it's like, it starts with the line, In the reign of the 35th Otark, it became fashionable to be seen as in touch with the natural world. And it just goes for a few more sentences. I won't read it all. But basically, it like tells the story of this thing. So like, there are these people, they would stop, they stopped wearing artificial cloth. But then eventually, they started walking barefoot. And then some people took it so far that they had their forebrain removed, their prefrontal cortex removed so they could be like an animal. And then the stinger, which I love, while the results were undeniable, it prevented participation in even the most basic functions of the state. The Otak applauded their commitment, but taste soon moved on. <laughs> it's like, it does so much to help flesh out that background, but also just the world. And I think that's what I was really mm-hmm. taken with, yes. with the enemies in particular. So the two that I wanted to point out were the bone shad, which is, uh, it's not a bone, sorry, it's the bond shad, uh, B-O-N-S-H-A-D. 
Uh, and I'm just going to read the description because it's it's just wild to me. The Bonshad is the source of an amusing piece of trivia amongst diabolists. While it is well known that the Bonshads know the method of creating the elixir of Shazmasm, it is less well known, at least amongst <laughs> impatient apprentices, that the 17th incantation of Ignis Baxter, Bring Up What Bonshad Come, contains a typo in the fifth chorus. <laughs> You can imagine the embarrassment this would have caused Master Baxter had he not been tragically caught up in the Oblation Wars soon after completing his seminal work. Regardless, calling up this hook-beaked, betentacled fiend without the reformed texts sees one dragged off to the bottom of the Demon Sea to work their curious minds. What a lark! <laughs> Every part of that is beautiful to me. Uh, there is so much specificity, and it's all mm -hmm. completely baffling. And I love it. You don't get, you don't get a description of this monster until like seven sentences yeah. in. It's perfect. And, it's, and the only description <laughs> is hook-beaked, betentacled fiend. I love it. It's great. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the the last one I was going to bring up is just uh, a similar idea, but a, a different sort of uh, focus. Uh, this is the lizard man. Imagine a fat man, but this man is a crocodile. Stand him on his hind legs, yank his head into a civilized position, shorten his snout, and give him some short horns and a large weapon. This is a lizard man, a preternaturally preter militaristic race who spontaneously regiment themselves from the moment they goose-step their way out of the egg. Their only social structure and interest is the army, making them excruciatingly dull dinner guests. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like... Again, it's it's very, like, it's pretty funny, and, like, it's mm -hmm. very, like, weird and evocative, but also just, like, gives a bunch of, like, very interesting things about the world. So there's, there's, a, there's a race in this world of Troika where, basically, from birth, they just automatically put themselves into military hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Just specifically with the words goose, goose step. step. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just, I, I just, this one just really stuck out to me. Um, and they're, they're all kind of like this. I mean, you've mentioned the loathsome worm that will consume the sun before. Mm -hmm. um, that one has a whole page. It's two full paragraphs, whereas most of the others are two beasts on a page. Um, yeah. But they're just, they're both. Uh, so, like, when I first sort of put this together for us to read, right? Because you mostly recommend things that are shorter, and I am mostly recommending things that are tending to be longer. I mm -hmm. I have put together some reading guides for stuff like Aegon, especially, right? And for some something like this, where essentially I'm just saying like, ah, this is the stuff we should both for sure read, and here's the stuff that we can kind of like dabble in. And so I was originally mm -hmm. like, yeah, and so spells, enemies, items, advanced skills, all of the backgrounds, we can kind of read whatever we want and like maybe talk through stuff. But like... If I was going to pitch this to somebody else, I would basically be like, you should read every page of this book. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> uh, one, you'll probably enjoy it. Or if you don't enjoy it, you will know way sooner than getting to the spells or the enemies. Um, right. And two, yeah. if you do enjoy it, you're just going to want to read. You're going to want to read it because it's going to flesh out the world for you. Yes. Um, cool. Well, that's that. So that's not the end of the book. But... That is the end of sort of the system in some ways, uh, because the fi yeah. the final part of the book is this adventure, the Blanc Mange and Thistle, which is sort of an introductory adventure. Um, and yeah. I was kind of just going to open it up and see. I, I don't know that I have a ton of thoughts about it. I, I feel like you probably have more thoughts because you tend to approach things from the GM perspective. 
Um, yeah, I mean, most of my thoughts are like, this is useful. Yeah. Um, it, it is, it is a good way to sort of see in practice, um, some of the things that this system sort of can, uh, afford, um, and, and good ways to like, uh, you know, wrap your head around some of the more abstract concepts. And, and I like the way it's laid out, right? Like, it's basically like, here's a, there's a, you gotta get the, the sixth floor of this building, um, and you can either take the elevator or the stairs, and then there's, like, here are, here's what happens on each floor if you take the elevator. It's mostly sort of, like, goofy, strange NPC engagements, and here's what happens if you, like, take the stairs, which are mostly, like, encounters. Um, well, so that's the interesting thing that I did... I- I, I really so I agree with everything you've said so far. I, I actually think the you brought up the the most important point about this, which is like it's really useful. This is actually very useful just to like get yeah. a sense of how things could sort of string together. Um, but the thing I found interesting is that you're right. the The way the elevator ones are pitched are mostly encounters with people and like weirdos, but mm-hmm. pretty much all of them, even on the elevator have yes. very clear ways in which they could turn into battles whereas yes, on the 100%. on the stairs it mostly tends towards battles uh, it seems like which i just uh, i just I, I found pretty interesting yeah i i think it's a it's a it's a good way to both structure a theoretical like uh one shot yeah. or to and to indicate to a gm or even any players who might want to just like get a better sense of the system like this is yeah again this is the these are the affordances yeah. you can you can do a lot of shit here here is some of the stuff you could potentially do um and how the system supports that and there's more i mean there's more it's worth saying like pretty explicit kind of like gme advice on it's like the second page of this i think it's page 95 in this pdf but like two of the questions because there's like a little very brief faq kind of thing after the intro two of the questions are this place is dangerous what if someone dies and the answer is mm-hmm. have them create a new character and introduce them at the next floor hello new friend uh-huh. and the second question after that is i don't know what's going on which is mm-hmm. is not a question and the response is mm-hmm. none of us do write it out and see what happens you can apply meaning and history to everything in your next session in light of the events of the first encourage the players to connect the dots for you and there's like some flavor text around like some layout stuff which is really fun but yeah we definitely don't need to go through it and i think you've actually hit on the main the main thoughts i had which were i think it's just really useful i think it's like a really well done thing and i'm really glad they included it my impression of it is that this is like largely this is like the biggest thing added to the numinous edition also like i think the zine had basically everything in here probably like less enemies and spells and items and stuff like that but like the big thing that took this from a zine to a book was the inclusion of this adventure and i think it's it seems extremely well worth it yeah absolutely (laughs) um cool well i I think that might i think that might be troika i think we might have talked about troika i don't i don't think i have any other sort of big kind of structural things or Really, any other hanging thoughts? Oh, I did have one other hanging thought that I I was just scrolling through. Um, so I have one more thing, and then I'll ask you if you have anything else. Uh, 
Okay. Which is, I, I just, I, I, I didn't bring this up during the rules stuff because I forgot. But uh, so the the very first thing in this PDF after the title page, which we, we spoke about this a little at the end of last episode, but the very first thing you see are, are tables. Um, right. Uh, yes. So you see tables and they have melee weapons, ranged weapons, and a beastly weapons. And basically there's just types of tables, right? And so uh, it's for damage, and so across the top, you have the different rolls you could make. So it has one through seven plus. And then um, down on the left-hand side, you have all of the different types of weapons. And the thing that's very interesting, and this gets talked about, is that the the scale and like the range of damage can vary rather wildly between things. So for instance, if you're unarmed, the the least amount of damage you can do is one. But the most, mm-hmm. the absolute max damage you can do unarmed is four. Mm-hmm. And if you compare that to, let's see, let me pick a fun one. If you compare that to, for instance, a maul, or let's do a, a great sword, actually. So if you do mm-hmm. a great sword, the lowest you could ever do is two, which is pretty similar to unarmed, one versus two on your absolute lowest roll. But again, with unarmed, the highest damage you could do is four. And a great sword, the highest damage you can do on a seven plus is 18. Um, which is a lot of damage. Kind of, it's like, as as has been said a number of times across this, mostly by you. This game is balanced for for some swingy combat. It is, <laughs> and um, one of the things that he talks about, which I I really I like, is that like th- this is very intentional, and you should in fact feel free to continue to augment this and think about, for instance, like what is the maximum damage you could do with a thing? Like, even just conceptually, right? If you think about your fist versus a greatsword, it makes sense. Even a small hit with a greatsword is going to hurt you more than a small hit with a a fist, right? Mm -hmm. But a really good hit with a greatsword is going to hurt so much more, right? Mm -hmm. Could, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, my stamina was, I want to say, it was something like 12 or 13 when I did my character sheet. Um Mm -hmm. And so, like, somebody hitting me for 18 with a greatsword, I'm just dead. I'm just gone. Bye. See ya. Um, And I thought that was really really cool. I want to say 18, or, yeah, 18 kills a mana core. Yeah. Like, it kills, like, very strong enemies. I mean, even the the Loathsome Worm of the Sun, which is, I think, one of the larger, bigger ones, I think his stamina is, like, 46. So, like... Even just thinking about 18 versus 46, like, that's three hits, like, three really big... That's basically two best hits possible and then one okay hit, and you've killed one of yeah. the stronger enemies in the book. Um, yes. Which is is cool. And, like, I, I think it's, again, it's just... It, it really struck me as... Uh, this is a very, like, mechanical-heavy thing, right? This is a literal damage table. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also so flavorful, um totally. in terms of how it handles stuff and so yeah i just wanted to call that out i that one really really stuck out to me i thought that the the weapon scaling stuff and sort of the way it was talked about was cool any any last thoughts for you or anything we didn't touch on um a thing that i kind of wanted to bring up actually <laughs> right at the top um but i forgot to in my in my fighting fantasy thing uh sort of like background info uh that i just i remember like halfway through when we started talking about video games mm-hmm. um just like a an interesting little tidbit is that 
So Steve Jackson, who was one of the writers of the Fighting Fantasy stuff, one of the founders of Games Workshop, uh, also had a series called Steve Jackson's Sorcery. Uh, it was like a, it was basically the same thing. Choose your own adventure books that sort of use dice, but it had more of a, a, a you know swords and sorcery sort of background. In the mid two thousand or mid twenty tens, so like right before this game came out, uh, Inkle, the studio who made mo- probably most famously Eighty Days, yeah. Uh, they adapted sorcery, or, uh, the four sorcery books, into these sort of mixed visual novel RPG sort of things. And I ended up watching part of it, and it was really interesting. And I, I just find it very interesting that ne- I've never seen anyone bring that up in terms of potential influence on Cell when making this a very, uh, a very straight rip of uh <laughs> fighting fantasy in some ways that like the creator of fighting fantasy was sort of like back in at least the the discourse a little bit because inkle is like a studio that people give a shit about and those games i don't think like did gangbusters or anything but like yeah i was just like oh yeah like 2013 to 2015 or something like that 2016 so like the year before uh troika comes out inkle was was also adapting Steve Jackson's intellectual property. Um, or I guess they were adapting the intellectual property and Daniel Sell was just kind of yoinking it. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was, uh, that was an interesting little historical tidbit that I meant to bring up and I didn't. And now I did. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, Hey B. Yeah. What are we going to do next episode? I have a question. Okay. Uh, you talked about how I tend to choose shorter things. Uh, th- that has been historically uh, true, yeah. It is, and I'm wondering, given as you as you sort of peeled back the curtain earlier, given that you especially, but also me especially, have had uh, a pretty long month. This is probably the longest we've gone without actually recording in a while. How do you feel about doing a sort of a longer piece for the critical thing? that uh is a bit of a deep dive that i haven't had time actually on my own to even read uh this is longer than troika the long option interesting like i did i did side by side word count it straight up is longer than troika (laughs) um by about two thousand words or a sort of more fun option with uh that i have read and i know to be quite good um, and that can get us into a conversation about uh, into a into a different conversation. So, or maybe a different way to pitch these, right? Would you be more interested in doing a deep dive into some of the stuff we've already been talking about, or picking up um, a thre- a new thread to talk about uh, a different sort of side of tabletop role playing games? Um, well, I have gone ahead and clicked on the two links because I am a rebel. And nobody uh-huh. can it's extremely nobody rude. can hold me back, <laughs> and I uh-huh. think we should do the long one. Yeah, yeah, because I'm very cu- I'm I, uh, th- my head is here right now, um, based on mm-hmm. reading Troika, but also just like doing some of the prep to try and like situate it and understand where it came from and all of that stuff. Um, and s- you yep, you do see this is a five part. I do blog post. Yeah, okay, just. Wanted to make a hundred percent clear. <laughs> I mean, uh, t- uh, to peek behind the curtain again, y- you and I are going to need to have some conversations around schedule because we are we are nowhere near near our schedule, and so nope. <laughs> uh, we we should just like I don't think I I am very interested in this long one, and 
would mm-hmm. love to talk through it and and understand. The long one is about the OSR uh, listeners. Um, yeah, it's sort of a historical yeah. deep dive into OSR, which you can say more about. But that 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 would be my preference personally, for sure. Cool. Um, then then we're doing it. Um, so yeah, this is a five part essay um, in blog form from early 2021 um, by OSR com. I have read the first part and sort of glanced through the next couple. Um, I don't know if this is, I, I know this was like floating around and people were um, being very excited about it. I don't know exactly how much historicization they do, what sort of their methodology exactly is. Other than that, it seems pretty good <laughs> um, from what I've read. I, again, I read I read this probably right around when it came out, so it's been a while. Uh, let's say. Uh, well, I, so I will say what's interesting is that I just clicked on one of the popular posts is just OSR introductory adventures a list, and that was updated. That post was updated last year in October. Is this like a? Hmm. Is this like an an, an is this blog still being actively updated? Yeah. Okay. Or it was last time I checked. Okay, cool. I guess I guess their most recent blog post, if you just go straight to the homepage, is from May of 2022. So yeah. they have updated that older post more recently than they've posted. Yeah. But Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Th- that's an active blog to me. Th- yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, I'm excited. I mean, so uh, part of why I'm interested in this is because, I mean, the OSR stuff is also part of what started us talking about tabletop rpgs together in a and more than just a like we talk about friends at the table way because mm-hmm. you started posting stuff um and we were both re-listening to things like old actual play podcasts and things and i've never looked into it at all i've only i the only things i know about osr are things we've talked about basically hell yeah okay cool well hey b yeah. where can people find you on the internet i am on twitter at B Gabriel, that's B like a honeybee, Gabriel like the music, and then an E L at the end. Incredible. And you can find me on the internet. Uh, just go to Instagram and you can look on Instagram for the account. <laughs> just go to Instagram. Just go to Instagram and just hope. Beat up is fucking just everywhere. All and I'll show up eventually, is the thing. Uh, just keep scrolling. It's all, it's all weaving it's videos, all, it's baby. All that. No, uh, you can follow me at bakery slash workshop. Uh, three words all spelled out, all smushed together. Instagram.com slash bakery slash workshop. Uh, and that I believe is the end of episode 5.2 of on the matter of systems. It sure is everybody for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey, BW, do you want to go play Trogo right now? Uh, sure. Actually. Yeah. Let's go do that. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah.